Well, I'm happy to be able to speak to you all this morning, and I'd like to um, begin by thanking Pastor West for his uh, kind invitation. It's always a pleasure to be able to speak at Houghton Wesleyan. Um, if, if you are uh, new here today, um, I am a member of the uh, religion faculty. I teach courses that help students think theologically about the changes in our world, and things are changing so rapidly that it's like a new course every time uh, this comes up. Uh, it's almost impossible to keep up with the rate of change. Um, and so many of the changes have to do with the digital world and its incursion uh, into our life on so many different levels. So much of our lives are wrapped up now with our phones, with our laptops, with our tablets. These things are kind of the secular counterpart to divine omniscience, instant knowledge, instant communication, uh, instant entertainment. And it seems like more and more there are just fewer and fewer boundaries. Uh, I, was in the, I was in the men's room one morning at the college, and in the stall next to me, I heard all of these voices and engines revving. There's a young man sitting on the toilet engaged in his morning evacuation ritual, and he's watching a movie. This might be a generational thing, folks, but no. You, you just need to stop this now. You need boundaries in your life. You need a hobby is what you need, you know. And believe me, I don't want to borrow your phone. You know, I've, I've seen your personal hygiene habits. And now we have to deal with these devices that are listening to us. Are you aware of this? You know, there are smart televisions that can record your conversation in your living room and store that conversation on a server somewhere. Imagine that. You know, you better, you better be careful swearing at the Buffalo Bills Sunday afternoon because someone's listening and recording that. And, and digital assistants uh, are all the rage right now. Uh, Alexa or Siri or I don't know what you have, maybe Google Home, something like that. And these things are supposed to make our lives easier. They kind of make them weirder. Um, I was in a coffee shop in Buffalo last year, and I'm, I'm sitting there next to a table full of young teens who are doing their math homework. And the way they're doing it is this. They have the phone out, and they're going down right through a list of problems saying, Siri, what is, and they're asking Siri questions. Siri, what is, and they're doing all their homework like this. So, you know, I'm kind of an old guy now, but I guess I'm naive because I asked the young person, I said, is this common? Does everybody do this? And she looked at me like my mother dropped me on my head when I was, of course it's common. Why wouldn't we use technology like this? Well, while the political and commercial ramifications of all this are scary, right? I mean, who's actually listening to us? And why? And 
what are they doing with that information? Uh, one of the main things that concerns me is the way that these devices are actually shaping us and changing us, even as we're employing them. And the habit of thinking that they tend to instill in us is that somehow our deepest needs can be met by, you know, instant downloads of information. That our most vexing problems can be sufficiently addressed by some ridiculous tweet. Or, or alternatively, some huge artificially intelligent agent. And when you're constantly attached to these devices, it's very easy to be seduced into thinking that way. But folks, as I look at the world around us, what we're facing collectively, I think what we need most is what Siri doesn't know and what Alexa can't tell us. Because what we need more than anything else for the living of these days is wisdom. We need to be able to figure out how to disagree graciously. We need to be able to figure out how to bring healing to a deeply divided and wounded world. We need to be able to speak the truth against hatred, but, do, but doing so in such a way that doesn't incite more hatred. Because when we do that, we just become the mirror of the very thing we claim to despise. We need wisdom. I mean, by any estimation, our world is in a heap of trouble right now. You know, if you're like me, you, you, some mornings you wake up and you think, surely things can't be any worse than they were yesterday. And you read the news and you go, oh, it just got worse again. And, and it could be argued that our devices, with all these different ways to communicate, have actually made the cultural climate much, much worse. So there's a terrible irony here. We're awash in a sea of knowledge, not just facts, not just, you know, favorite tourist destinations in Iceland or how to combat tomato blight, not just facts, but entire libraries, of human knowledge at our fingertips. And yet what we need the most seems to be eluding us. Now, if all of this isn't disturbing enough, if I haven't made your day dark enough already, what makes this situation dangerous for the church, and I've observed this on numerous occasions, is when we tend to imitate the very worst that we see in our politicians and other high-profile leaders. We tend to imitate their rhetorical styles in the church. And in that light, it's easy to understand why in this age, in which people want spiritual answers, you know, spirituality is big business. In this age where there's such a spiritual hunger, the fastest growing group on the religious landscape in the West are the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That is people with no institutional affiliation with religion at all. These are folks who've had it 
with organized religion and with religious leaders who just, who just seem to be able to make things worse all the time. In a world of so many jagged edges, in a world in which power is the only currency, the message of the cross can only look ridiculous. To a church that is so deeply internally divided over power struggles, to a church that is so unsure of itself in terms of how it should relate to the outside world, the Apostle Paul writes, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, in other words, the whole world. There's not Jews and Gentiles and independent voters. Jews and Gentiles and Rand Paul. The whole world doesn't get it. Because Jews would have said, Messiahs don't die. That's not in the job description for a Messiah. They don't die. And to the Greeks, those who prize spiritual wisdom, the very notion that the eternal God could somehow get his hands dirty, mixed up with the life of this crucified man, was was preposterous. You know that that some pop dispensers of wisdom in the ancient world had had such loyal, committed followers that that they paid them to dispense their wisdom? Uh, even in the church, uh, there were people who were prized for their spiritual wisdom, and, and they had groupies. You know, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Cephas. Um, if if they were alive today, people would be following their blogs and their tweets. Right? You know, hashtag I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. Um, you've heard of some of the various philosophies in the ancient world. There's Platonists and cynics and Stoics. And and all of these philosophies are in the air influencing people, but basically what they all shared in common was a denigration of the material world and the body so that real spiritual wisdom isn't to be found here or isn't to be found here. It's in this elevated plane somewhere that I can keep compartmentalized and even prize myself on my spiritual wisdom. And all through this letter, Paul has to combat that idea that the material world is somehow inferior and that the body is inferior. So he has to tell the Corinthians, no, you can't do what you want sexually and convince yourself that you're spiritually wise. It doesn't work that way. You can't take the Lord's Supper lightly because in it he says we actually participate in the body and blood of Jesus. You can't exercise your Christian liberty in an, in an indiscriminate way because even matters of eating and drinking, as mundane as that sounds, that affects the people around us. And in that magnificent chapter, in chapter 15, where he talks about the resurrection, he says, look, folks, the resurrection is not some sort of abstract, ethereal event. It hasn't already happened somehow spiritually. The resurrection of Jesus is bodily, and our bodily resurrection will be like Christ, and we will have glorified bodies like his. And for Paul, all of these things flow from taking seriously the fact that somehow 
the eternal life of God has intersected with the life of Jesus. That this man who was condemned and executed as a common criminal is the wisdom of God. He is the one who interprets God to us and who interprets us to God, as as N.T. Wright puts it. But the greatest minds just simply begin to lose traction, he said, when they hear the message that this Christ died. He was buried. And he was raised bodily. God doesn't act like that. Another way to put it is simply this. Paul is saying, everything you think you know about God is wrong. We have these ideas about God as this huge entity out there who just kind of lets us figure it out or occasionally, you know, gives us a whack to keep us in line. Zeus hurls his thunderbolt. The apostle says, the cross of Jesus, that message just levels all of that. So in verse 19 of our passage, Paul quotes that judgment oracle from Isaiah, uh, delivered to a very smug and complacent Israel. And, and he, he applies it to the wisdom, the so-called wisdom of his time. He even says in chapter 10, everything that happened in Israel happened for our benefit, because we're living in, these, in the last days. So he asks, where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? No one gets it. But he says, we speak of God's secret wisdom in chapter 2. We speak of this wisdom that was hidden before all time and destined for our glory and revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And apart from that, we have no access to this. But here's a question. Maybe some of you have been thinking about this as I've been talking. You know, we can ask our digital assistants for wisdom. You can ask Siri that. You can ask Alexa that. You can can Google search for wisdom and you can pull up entire libraries of the very best uh, that, that human beings have thought of. And it's all at your fingertips. But our search engines will always turn up these resources indiscriminately. Alexa can't vouch for the truth of any of it. Your search will turn up everything from the book of Proverbs to Confucius to Oprah (laughs) to Winnie the Pooh's little book of wisdom. And it'll all be there. And in the situation of pluralism, it's very easy for all kinds of religious crazies to stand up and agree with Paul and say, yeah, everyone's missed it, the whole world has missed it, but somehow I have secret access to God's wisdom. I have the secret revelation. Sometimes it's quite crazy. You know, God appeared to me in my raisin brand this morning, and he told me all of you were supposed to write checks to John Case Ministries, right? You know, Maybe, maybe not that crazy. Maybe, maybe somehow my tiny church of the petrified brethren, we have access to divine wisdom that the rest of Christendom somehow missed. 
No wonder a lot of the nuns I mentioned earlier, people with no formal religious affiliation, they look at us and they say, you people are all riding the crazy train together. I mean, how do you know that Christ is really the wisdom of God? How do you know that this gospel is any more legitimate than any other religious message out there? Anyone can say, I have access to a special revelation. That's how most cults get started. I wish there was an easy answer to that question. Um, I wish there was a knockdown apologetics that could just prove the truth of the gospel and just bulldoze all the other claims that are out there. I wish that existed. Um, and before you send me links to Ravi Zacharias, I taught apologetics for 20 years. Okay, I get it. Um, folks, I've come to believe that the only way the vast majority of people come to be convinced of this truth is that if the church that confesses the crucified Christ actually lives it out and embodies it. Because the wisdom of God, again, is not a set of propositions. It's not a new religious book. The wisdom of God is embodied in the person of Jesus. Even when we talk about the New Testament, the New Testament, the New Testament is not a book. The, the New Covenant is the broken and resurrected body of Jesus. He is our peace. He is the new and living way. Let me make a couple of quick connections here. That means we are not simply a people who follow a new set of rules, who have a religious manual that other religions don't have. We're not Christ's book club. We're not his debate team. What does Paul say in chapter 12 of this book? You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And if you want to know what following this Christ means, what embodying this means, look no further than 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's the practical outworking of what following the wisdom of the crucified means. I can fathom all mysteries, Paul says. I can, I can have all the knowledge. If I don't have love, I'm nothing. I could have a super spiritual Siri who could give me all the secrets of the universe and God's inner life. I don't have love, I'm nothing. Friends, information has never been the church's problem. I have so many theology books in my office. Fire and safety have told me I can't stack them any closer to the ceiling. Information's not the problem. The problem has always been transformation. The problem has always been that we need to become what we're called to be. The greatest challenge being thrown to us by the nuns is not, you know, give us another apologetics book. We can ask Siri for theology and, apolog and apologetics titles all day long. And at the end of the day, we all know talk is cheap. 
So Christians, show us you're not interested in just making things worse. Show us that you don't keep your spirituality compartmentalized and apart from real life. Show us that this love of Christ you keep talking about is real. But here's the thing, and it's confession time. I'm just going to be really open and vulnerable with you. I know John Case. Some of you do too. And I can tell you that living out this great message I'm talking about, it does not come naturally to me at all. My initials might be J.C., But anyone who knows me longer than 10 minutes has never confused me with Jesus Christ. Jesus liked to go fishing. I like to go fishing. And the natural similarity pretty much ends right there. You bark at me, I'll bark back louder. You bite me, I'll bite back harder. That's my natural inclination. You cross me, I can cut you off the kneecaps and do it with a song in my heart. all of which is to confess to you, brothers and sisters, I need to be changed. How about you? Paul says in chapter 2, we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we can understand what God has freely given to us. And that understanding is not through logic, is not through rationality, but it's through a deep inner conviction and comprehension. And apart from that, we just can't pull this off. We have not received the spirit of the world. And learning to walk in the wisdom of the crucified in a world of guns and trumpets, it's going to take a lot of renovating work by the Spirit. The Spirit needs to haul out a lot of stuff out of the attic and knock down walls and leverage old foundations. I mean, I'm a real fixer-upper. I don't know about you. That needs to happen in my life. Look, I, I realize there's so much confusion about the work and leading of the Holy Spirit. I wish I had another message to be able to talk about this. Um, Honestly, sometimes when someone tells me something crazy that they think the Spirit is telling them, I just think to myself, you know, the Spirit needs to start drinking decaf. Like, why why would he do that? Why would he tell you to do something that's going to land you in America's most wanted? I mean, you need to write a note of encouragement to someone or bring a bag of groceries to someone. Wesley warned people about this. He said, don't believe every voice in your head that it's from God. It might be from God. It might be from the devil. It might just be your own voice. But quickly, here's the test. Here's the test. If it's really the Holy Spirit leading us, does what we're hearing take us back to 1 Corinthians 13? So that against the grain of what we normally might do, we find that we're actually living out these realities. That's the Spirit's empowering and enabling. And as we live and walk and embody this wisdom, 
as we live and walk and embody this Christ to the world, this Christ who is himself the embodiment of God's eternal wisdom as this happens. You know what we're going to realize? That this body becomes the very temple of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit is honored and has free reign. That's good theology right there, by the way. We need wisdom, friends, for the living of these days. But that means we need a wisdom that transcends the normal boundaries and resources of human wisdom. And we need a transformed way of living in this world together. And that's what Alexa can't tell us. But praise God, that's what Christ and his Holy Spirit can do in us. May God bless you richly as you invite him to do that work in your life today. God bless you.